Hi there, I'm Paulina, LWC Studios' managing producer. Lend me your ear for a minute. The Supreme Court's decision to repeal Roe v. Wade devastated me and many of my colleagues in podcasting. It continues to be important that we stand together in supporting a person's right to choose. That's why I'm participating in the Listen to Women Coalition. It's a group of audio creators dedicated to uplifting and creating pro-choice content. We've launched a merch campaign with 100% of proceeds going to the National Network of Abortion Funds. You can find a link to Listen to Women on LWC Studios' Twitter, at LWC Studios. Buy a t-shirt, wear it to your next hang to go to a live podcast show and on the way to the polls. And tell a friend. Thanks. million adults in the United States have a criminal record. This is season two of 70 Million, an open source podcast about how people, neighborhoods, counties, and cities are breaking cycles of incarceration, starting with the local jail. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller. So I got to experience the uncomfortability of just being stuffed in a cage and all. That was real scary. We're keeping people down there with rats, roaches. They got black mold. And we spend $16 million on it every year. We eliminated cash bail bonds in the city of Atlanta. There is no one who's been incarcerated, including myself, who has been helped by incarceration. Texas is a big state with a reputation for being tough on anyone suspected of breaking the law. But what that looks like depends on where exactly you are. Nearly every one of the Lone Star State's 254 counties has its own jail. From a bare-bones three-bed holding cell in Real County to the 10,000-bed Harris County Jail in Houston, which has education programs and a large medical wing, and each has its own elected sheriff who calls the shots. For this episode and the next, we're bringing you a special two-parter about the potential consequences of such an uneven system, especially for incarcerated people with medical needs. Statewide, there's no one standard for health care behind bars. We begin in Victoria, Texas, an old shipping town on the Guadalupe River between Houston and San Antonio. Reporter Rowan Moore Garrity takes the story from there. A note to listeners, this episode includes graphic descriptions of mistreatment and neglect during pregnancy and birth. When Chandra Franklin Williams met her husband, Dwayne, in 2001, she wasn't actually interested in meeting anyone. Chandra was raised mostly by her dad. Her parents split up when she was in middle school, and most of the housework fell to Chandra. Cooking, cleaning, looking after her brothers and cousins. I don't know what it is. I think I'm a child magnet. I raise, I help with our Kia's brother, Kia, Keisha, Cherie, my two brothers, and my goddaughter, um, Sierra. Chandra grew up in a tightly knit family in Victoria's Black community, surrounded by relatives. At 24, she'd already given up the chance to go to nursing school to stay with her last boyfriend. That had not ended well. After she used his bank account to buy a brand new car, her boyfriend claimed she did it without his knowledge, and she was sentenced to four years in prison for theft by check. Back home in 2001, 
She was working as a nurse's aide in an assisted living facility and trying to move on. But her mom insisted on trying to set her up with someone from church. And she must have called about nine or ten times that morning. Chandra had just gotten home from working the night shift, and she was trying to get some sleep on the couch. And my daddy kept bringing me the phone. It's your mama. It's your mama. And he brought the phone in there again. I know she said, I'll be out there in a little bit. She was asleep again when she heard the front door open. Her mom was outside, and she wanted her to meet a man. I jumped up. I said, Mama. And I shot through the house and ran through the kitchen. And I just shook my head. I said, I cannot believe my mama just did this. Brought this guy here, and I'm asleep. I was like, Mama, this is embarrassing. Chandra's mother told her to get dressed, then drove her daughter back to her own house, where she'd been hanging out with Dwayne, the man she knew from church. She was like, well, we're going to go to bingo tonight. I was like, okay. She said, Mr. Dwayne, and y'all going to have to drive your, you're going to have to drive your car. And I'm like, Mama, don't get in the car with no strangers. And she said, oh, no, he's okay, he's okay. When they finally met, Dwayne thought they connected. I mean, to me, the eye contact thing was going on. But at this point, Chandra was fuming. She couldn't believe how pushy her mom was being. He was talking to me, and I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't even say anything. Still, Dwayne was smitten. He couldn't wait to come back that evening and pick Chandra up for bingo. After they met, he was so distracted, he could barely get back into his car to leave. I was fumbling with my door handle just looking at her. Anyhow, they did go to bingo that night, they had fun, and after that, Chandra says things just took off. They fell in love and got married the next year, and soon they started trying to have kids. We got pregnant again, and it's just like every time I drop, I get pregnant again, pregnant again. I think I was pregnant with twins. So it was a total of five miscarriages. So Anthony was our miracle baby. She and Dwayne decided they would name their son Anthony. They called him a miracle because it was the first time one of Chandra's pregnancies had gone past the first trimester. Still, it was a really difficult pregnancy. Chandra was in and out of the hospital, and when she was home, she felt so feverish she kept taking cool baths. I couldn't stay cool. I mean, my body was just hot, hot, hot. I couldn't cool off. The pregnancy and her job were a lot to manage, and she missed a court date for a hearing about her probation. In June 2004, when she was four months pregnant with Anthony, a sheriff's deputy knocked on the door of the relative's apartment where she was staying. When he came in, he told me to stand up, and he was kind of rough, and Dwayne said, hey, hey, she's pregnant. Dwayne was very, very, very outright that day. Watch what you do to her. And he said, those cuffs are not supposed to be behind her. They're supposed to be in front of her. My God, I told you she's pregnant. That afternoon, Chandra was booked into the Victoria County Jail. Her husband, Dwayne, was also arrested. It turned out he had a warrant for a bad check, too. In Victoria County, bouncing a check can lead to criminal charges, even if you didn't realize your check wouldn't clear. Dwayne was able to get out on bail a few hours after the arrest. Chandra says she didn't have that option. Even though her original case had already gone to court, she was arrested on a probation violation, which often means forfeiting the chance at bail. Bottom line, her family couldn't get her out while she waited to go before a judge again. What's more, the jail had a rule. 
If a person's been behind bars in the last six months, even just in a holding cell, they're not allowed to visit anyone else in the jail. That meant even though he'd paid off his court fees, Dwayne couldn't come to see Chandra. But he found a workaround. Her mom or her dad, mostly it was her dad, and he would go in first and put his ID up on the counter to get her to come out. And when she would come out, I would walk around the corner. I would sneak in to go see her. Chandra spent her days in a cell with a group of about a dozen women. Some came and went overnight. Others had been there for months in a big concrete room with no furniture except a bunch of bunk beds and lights and a TV that stayed on 24 hours a day. Chandra remembers a small window on one side, papered over so inmates couldn't tell what time of day it was. The women never got to go outside. The only way to sense the passing of time was to wait for meals delivered on a rolling metal cart three times a day. Might be lucky for three hots. Might be lucky. Might be lucky because sometimes your breakfast is probably boiled eggs. Then you get a goulash meal for lunch, which is hamburger meat and mixed vegetables. She remembers that some women pulled their shirts over their heads and tried sleeping as much as they possibly could to make the days go by more quickly. Chandra just tried to be friendly. I would just pay attention to everybody, talk to everybody, and we would laugh and talk. There are more than 240 jails in Texas. Each one is run by an individual county sheriff, but they're inspected at least once a year by a state agency called the Texas Commission on Jail Standards, or TCJS. While Chandra was there in 2004, Victoria County failed TCJS's annual jail inspection because it didn't have enough staff to manage the facility safely under state law. Women who were incarcerated there not long afterwards say they went months without a change of sheets and wore their clothes inside out when they got dirty. The Victoria County Sheriff's Office declined multiple requests for an interview for the story. I called and followed up in person to try and set up an appointment with the sheriff and eventually got an email from the jail administrator that said, quote, Unfortunately, at this time, we're going to decline interviews. Thank you for your interest in our agency. There wasn't much Dwayne could do for Chandra from the outside, but he tried to be present. So I did the most thing I can do to support her along the way. He and Chandra say they talked on the phone when they could and had two visits a week with a glass wall between them. Chandra remembers talking through a speakerphone without a receiver, mounted on the cell wall. What did you eat today? Did you, what did you feed my baby? I said, oh, we ate apples or oranges. What are you doing now? Don't be standing up too long. Make sure you drink milk. As Chandra's pregnancy went on, it became harder and harder to be apart from her husband. She was in a lot of pain, bad cramps, bleeding, and Dwayne worried she wasn't getting the medical attention she needed. When she was finally taken to get an ultrasound, he couldn't be there. He cried on the phone, and I cried. And then he said, I'm sorry. And I said, you don't have nothing to be sorry about. It's my fault that while we're here. Dwayne was right to worry. Most jails in Texas don't have round-the-clock medical staff. Many rely on contracts with outside providers. Victoria's medical unit is staffed by a vocational nurse and a medical assistant whose work is supervised by a doctor in another office. Chandra's pregnancy had already been difficult, and after a few weeks in jail, she began to experience complications and bleeding, too. 
but Chandra was afraid that jail staff would see her condition as a burden. She tried to push through without any treatment. Eventually, though, some of the other women in the cell started to intervene with the guards on her behalf. I would tell them, please don't, because I'm scared what's going to happen. I was just trying to, like, keep it quiet. One day, when Chandra had been there for a while, and she was at the end of her second trimester, someone pressed a button on the cell wall to call for help. Chandra told the officers what her doctor had said, that if she began to bleed, she should come in right away. Instead, she says they gave her Benadryl and told her to pack. I said, where are we going? They said, just pack your stuff. And I packed my stuff, and they put me in medical isolation. Isolation is another word for solitary confinement. Medical isolation is supposed to be what it sounds like. In Texas, most jails have a few additional cells that are used for one inmate at a time to protect themselves or others. So if someone's recovering from surgery or they test positive for tuberculosis, they can be housed in a different part of the building. That also makes it easier to deliver intensive medical care. But medical isolation is often used for other reasons, too. For inmates that are in the middle of a mental health crisis or on suicide watch, when what they really need is psychiatric treatment. And there's evidence from Texas and from all over the country that it's sometimes used for punishment or retaliation. That's what Chandra was afraid of. And because you have to understand, when you're constantly bothering them, they're going to do something. They're going to do something to you. You don't know what, but they're going to do something to you. Chandra couldn't tell why the corrections officer had put her in isolation. She wasn't getting any additional treatment or doctor's visits there. She says she tried to keep it together by praying her way through the days and talking with Dwayne on the phone, telling him about their baby. She would tell me he felt like he's just running all over her stomach and stuff and kicking and raising sand with her and stuff and how she would sit, down, sit at night and sing church songs to him. After two weeks in medical isolation, Chandra says she was finally allowed to go back to a group cell. For a while, she felt like things were actually going okay. She was still anxious to get out of jail as soon as she could, but she spent the afternoons helping out at a GED program and felt a kind of sisterhood with the other women. A few of them were mothers themselves, and they looked out for Chandra as her pregnancy progressed. You have to understand, I've never have gotten past 12 weeks of pregnancy, so I didn't know what to expect. One afternoon after about four months in custody, Chandra went to use the bathroom after a GED class while two of her cellmates were sitting nearby. At this point, she was within a few weeks of her due date. Kim and Amber were sitting on the bed. They said, what is that? Kim said, Shona, your water just broke. They told me, don't move. They were banging on the door to get help. And when they pushed the button, and finally officers came in, and they got me. And they said, um, you're going to probably go to the hospital. And you get your stuff together, and let's go. But the guards didn't take her to a hospital. They put her back in medical isolation in soaking wet clothes, drowsy from regular doses of Benadryl. I remember sitting on the bed. I remember crying myself to sleep. I didn't even call my husband. She stayed there for more than 24 hours, into the evening, through the night, and then through the next morning. 
when Chandra says the nurse told her she was scheduled to see a doctor that afternoon. But the afternoon came and went. Late the second night, Chandra was in a lot of pain, and she forced herself to get up and try to use the bathroom. I said, what is going on? It was hurting, and then my legs, it's like somebody just took and just stabbed both of them. And I said, God, what is this? And I started pushing. On the toilet, Chandra could feel that she was starting to deliver her baby. My body was starting to get real, real tight. It's real, real tight. But she couldn't stand up or even get back to the bed. I said, I gotta do something. I said, I gotta do something. And I asked God to forgive me. And I said, Mama, sorry, but I'm gonna have to do this. And I began to try to scoop, scoop myself across the room. Chandra pressed the emergency button for the third time that day, and a voice came over the intercom. It's back control. He was already irritated. I said, I am in labor. Ma'am, whenever we get a chance, we're going to send somebody down there. So I crawled back. Got up on the bed. I propped my feet up. I could hear John screaming. It was another inmate who finally got the guard's attention. An inmate named John was in an isolation cell nearby and he started to bang on the door and yell as he heard Chandra's cries for help. Others followed suit. Alone in her cell, Chandra remembers feeling a rush and then reaching down to touch the baby's toes. When her cell door opened, she says corrections officers debated which hospital to take her to. And they were arguing, literally arguing over me, and I remember just saying, somebody just please help me and my baby, just help them. And I remember I was saying, somebody called Dwayne, just call Dwayne. When the staff finally brought her to the hospital, Chandra recognized the doctor as someone she knew from her work with seniors. I could hear him talking to me, but I just couldn't make sense of what they were saying. And Dr. Hayes took me, took my hand, and he shook it and he grabbed it real tight. And he just hugged me. The sheriff's department was already trying to put me in handcuffs. <laughs> and the lady said, he's gone. On October 30th, they called it stillborn. <laughs> that night, medical staff took Anthony's body out of the room. Dr. Hayes told me if they could, when he came in to talk to me the next morning to discharge, if he would have got here, he would have lived. He was gone. Chandra says she refused any medication that day. All she wanted was to hold her son. I wanted my baby in the room. When the guards and he's dead, why do you, why does he have to be in the room? But that was my baby. That was my son. That night, Chandra was sent back to sleep in the same medical isolation cell where she'd been in labor. The sheriff in office today, Sheriff Michael O'Connor, 
was elected in 2004, just a few days after Chandra lost her child. He declined to talk. I did get a call back from the jail administrator. This is Charles Williamson with the Sheriff's Office of Victoria, Texas. I'm returning your call. Captain Williamson wasn't working at the sheriff's office when Chandra was incarcerated, but he oversees the jail now. I wanted to see uh, if I could arrange an interview because I'm working on a story uh, that, broadly speaking, is about pregnancies in Texas County jails, but does touch on a specific case from Victoria a number of years ago. How long ago was that case? 2004-2005. Hang on just a second. I'm going to holler at somebody. Captain Williamson told me he'd get back to me. Since then, I followed up by both phone and email. I asked if the sheriff's office would participate in fact-checking to corroborate or contradict Chandra's story. And sent Williamson a list of written questions about the way the jail is run and the treatment of pregnant women there. He wrote, quote, Again, we are going to decline an interview. We also submitted records requests for some of the same information about medical and emergency procedures, standard of care in Victoria County, both from the jail and from its contracted medical provider, the University of Texas Medical Branch. Both agencies asked the state attorney general's office to rule on the request. They wanted permission not to release any records. Chandra also requested a copy of all her medical and disciplinary records from the jail in April. She hasn't gotten any records back either. Chandra wasn't allowed to go to her son's funeral. Dwayne buried Anthony himself in a family plot one county over. I haven't dealt with his death. I haven't. I have not. <laughs> I have not. It was going to be 15 years this year, and I have not. Everybody's always telling me just to, life goes on like this. But when you want something so badly and it's taken from you, it just, my whole world has fell apart. A few weeks after her son died, Chandra got a hearing about her probation violation, and she was transferred to state custody to serve her year-long sentence. When she got home the following fall, she tried to put her life back together. She went back to the job she loved, working with senior citizens in an assisted living facility, and she stayed active in her church. Then, in December 2005, Chandra was at a gas station one night, trying to cash her paycheck. She ended up talking with a sheriff's deputy who ran her driver's license. And he said, Miss Williams, I got some good news and bad news. The good news was that Chandra was who she said she was. She shouldn't have any trouble cashing her check. But bad news, you're going to have to come with me. When the deputy ran her license, he found an open bench warrant. Chandra says she ended up getting released the next day. Somehow, she still had an open warrant, even though she'd just gotten out of prison. But that night, just before Christmas, she went back into the group cell she called the tank. This time, one of the other women there was an environmental activist named Diane Wilson. Diane stuck out. She was a white woman in her 50s who'd written several books and filed lawsuits against major corporations for pollution along the Gulf Coast. She was serving a five-month sentence for criminal trespass. That charge stemmed from a protest she'd done the year before, sneaking onto the roof of a big chemical plant, dropping a banner over the side, and then chaining herself to the railing. I used the exhaust pipe on my shrimp boat, so I stuck my hands in the stainless steel and you can't get through that thing. Authorities had to use a crane to get her down. Diane was always pulling stuff like this. 
I figured if I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to have it for a reason. Before she became an activist, Diane ran a shrimp boat on the Gulf Coast, just like the last three generations of her family, in a tiny town called Sea Drift. She spent her whole life on the water, and that's what she thought about when she was booked into the Victoria County Jail. Probably the best part of the day was when I would literally go into my head and try to imagine that I was a hawk flying over the bay. And I tried to imagine that as clear as I could. And that was the way I could escape for a while. She says all the women there had some way of visualizing life outside jail. It was like a ritual. They'd say, now when I get out, I'm going to open the front door. I'm going to take off my shoes. I'm going to go in the bathroom and I'm going to turn the water on. I'm going to go back in the kitchen. And they would go detail by detail by detail. And they did that all the time. Diane also wrote to friends who'd never set foot in jail, outraged by how petty the rules could be. I remember one of the girls had hid uh, chicken soup for the soul. I mean, I mean, that what can be more soulful and self-help. Think about your children or think about your good day or think about your religion or your faith. That's all it was. And eventually the guards came in and confiscated it. By the time Chandra was arrested, Diane was already a month into her sentence. And she'd gotten to be friends with some of the other women there. A lot of them had kids. And a lot of those girls didn't even know what happened to their kids. Diane wrote to friends that she was thinking of doing a hunger strike to try and shame the sheriff into improving jail conditions. They told her to try something else. So she started asking the women there if she could write down the stories they told her to try and raise awareness about jail conditions. And then, one night, Chandra walked in. But I remember it was Christmas, and and I remember she came in real late at night. They only overlapped for about 12 hours. But when Chandra agreed to tell her story, Diane took out a pencil and started taking notes on the backside of an inmate request form. Next day, her family came and picked her up. I remember that. But I did get her story. The two of them lost touch after that. This was before most people had social media. Chandra was trying to put the Victoria County Jail behind her once and for all. Diane was outraged by what she'd seen. She wanted to do something to bring attention to the way women were treated there. So her friends stitched together several of the stories Diane had sent them into an open letter addressed to the county sheriff. They took those stories. They sent it to the governor. They sent it to the senators. They sent it to Justice Park. They were sending them to reporters. One of Diane's friends was a retired Army colonel. She delivered the letter to Sheriff O'Connor in person in her Army dress uniform. The sheriff heard her out, but that's about it. He didn't agree to make any changes. After she got out, Diane picked up her activism along the Gulf Coast again. But she and a few of her friends, the colonel, along with a journalist in Austin named Diana Clater and another environmental activist in Houston, couldn't stop thinking about the Victoria County Jail. It was an eye-opener, and it was so grim for the visitors that I was shocked and how they treated us. That's Diana Clater, the journalist in Austin. To her, it seemed like most of the statewide watchdog groups focused on prisons, not jails. A 
quick reminder here that prisons are run by the state. That's where you go after you've been convicted of a more serious crime. In Texas, the minimum sentence in state prison is one year. At jails, most people have been arrested but not convicted, or convicted of less serious crimes. Diana estimates that about 4,000 pregnant women pass through the state's jails each year. But when Chandra was incarcerated, the state wasn't even keeping track of how many pregnancies or births took place behind bars. It wasn't uncommon for pregnant women to be shackled during labor and delivery. So we, we decided we would start this group, the four of us. In 2006, Diana put up an ad on Craigslist to get help building a website and set up an email account with the name Texas Jail Project. Right away, pretty quickly, the emails started pouring in. For the most part, she says, it was people desperate for information. Just wanting to know why nobody at this jail will call me back. Nobody will tell me if my uh, son is getting his seizure medicine. About 70% of the emails were from people writing about male relatives. So before long, they decided to broaden the group's focus beyond women to jail conditions overall. And since it was mostly altogether me at that point, I just started kind of answering people. The fact that Texas has a state agency that specifically regulates jails is actually kind of unusual. In a lot of states, jail standards are something sheriff's associations adopt voluntarily. Before the Commission on Jail Standards was created in 1975, Texas had a state statute requiring safe and sanitary jails, but it basically wasn't enforced. There was actually a provision in state law that prevented the health department from devoting any resources to jail inspections. The original mission was to ensure that the jails within the state of Texas provided a constitutional level of confinement. Brandon Wood, the executive director of the Commission on Jail Standards, says that when the commission was created... The 10 largest counties had either already lost or were in the process of losing court cases brought in the federal courts regarding the conditions of the county jails. Losing lawsuits gets really expensive. So legislators and county sheriffs decided they would rather have the state set the terms for adequate jail conditions instead of leaving it up to federal judges. Operation of the county jail can easily consume, in some counties, 20% 20 of the overall budget. And then you also have inmate health care. The courts have ruled on that time and time again, and that's simply one of the things where, regardless of whether they want to or not, they're responsible for providing it. That's where the jail commission comes in. Inspectors make annual visits to each one of the state's jails and follow up if they get serious complaints. But the commission's annual budget is tiny, less than $2 million to monitor conditions in facilities that house a million Texans over the course of a year. We do have four field inspectors, and then we have a critical incident inspector, which is a new addition that you know pretty well handles all the serious incidents, whether they be in custody deaths, escapes, suicides, assaults. Uh, we also have a complaint inspector. So they're stretched pretty thin. And in 2006, when the Texas Jail Project started fielding complaints, there was a lot of ground to cover. You have seven old messages. Friday. Almost 15 years later, Diane's letter to the sheriff has evolved into a kind of listening post for people encountering problems with jail conditions around Texas. Diana, I spoke with my son's attorney today, and she's not going to do it. 
I'm calling because the public defender said that they would have a meeting today with the uh, prosecutor and the DA. I just got off the phone with my wife, and uh, things are getting rather nasty. Yes, my grandson is in the Brazoria County Jail. I have tried for four days to reach medical and tell them that he tried to kill himself five times in the past year, that he has bipolar and he has severe seizures. Diana Clater has gotten hundreds of these messages over the years. People call asking about overcrowding, about how to get medication to incarcerated family members. In response, the Texas Jail Project calls jails to remind them of their obligations under state law, writes letters to judges, and recruits pro bono lawyers to file motions laying out poor jail conditions. They also try to pass new state laws to improve jail conditions and treatment for people in county jails. The group works out of an office loaned by a law firm, a room in a small bungalow in East Austin. Usually, the budget's about $30,000 a year. They recently got a grant to hire their first full-time employee. Everything we do is built on tip-of-the-iceberg situations. She calls them iceberg situations because the Texas Jail Project only learns about the cases people call or write them about. And that's a tiny fraction of what's out there. Take pregnant women, for example. I mean, if there's 4,000 a year and we have five cases, you know, we're, I bet you some of those other 4,000 women have some issues. When she started visiting the state legislature in 2008, Diana says she figured out pretty quickly it would be hard to get lawmakers to empathize with inmates struggling with drug addiction or mental illness. But that the one thing they might care about was the fact that there were these pregnant women in there and that Diane had already documented one woman who had delivered at the jail and on the way to the hospital because they wouldn't take her. That woman was Chandra Williams. At first, Diana was just trying to get the Commission on Jail Standards to make some really basic rule changes, like figuring out how many pregnant women were in county jails to begin with. Then, before the legislative session in 2009, she got advice from a veteran advocate around the Capitol. She said, no, you need a, you need a bill. And I said, well, I don't know how to do a bill. And she, she wrestled around and came out with a, you know, language from a previous bill. And she said, read that and substitute what you said at just all the places where there's content. And that's how it goes. So Diana started filling in the blanks. Two phone calls later, and they had state lawmakers prepared to sponsor the legislation. It was very easy to go into offices and say, you know, we have two bills. One is to ensure medical care for pregnant women in jails, and the other is to stop the shackling of them while they're in labor and childbirth. And people would just freeze and say, tell me you didn't just say that. Both of those bills passed and became law in 2009. After that, though, Diana had trouble getting traction in the Capitol. Texas is a big state, but the legislature only meets for a few months every other year. So there are a lot of bills competing for a little bit of time. It's like a big funnel with tons of bills introduced at the start of the session and a tiny spout for the legislation that passes by the time the session is over. Everything else gets poured out until two years later. The jail project tried pushing other legislation without success in 2011 and 2013.
Chandra Williams had decided to try for a fresh start at a different church from the congregation she'd grown up in. My original church, I would say because um, my heart just didn't feel right no, no more. She joined St. Peter's Baptist, a big A-frame church near downtown. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. How are you doing? Did you need something? No, I need St. Peter's. Yes, sir. We're here. After she joined the congregation, Chandra started spending most weekends there, helping out. She's a yes person, not a no person, so sometimes it's hard for her to tell people no. When she needs to tell people no. That's Derek Hunt, one of the pastors at St. Peter's. That's what keeps her together, the church. Chandra started dancing with the church group and brought her nieces and nephews to Sunday services. She and Duane were happy together, and they tried to move on from their loss. Even more than a decade after the fact, Chandra had no idea her conversation in jail with Diane Wilson had helped change state laws. She was just trying to stay afloat. Rowan Moore Garrity is a reporter based in New York City. Next time on 70 Million, we'll pick back up in Texas with the story of a mother who wrote the Texas Jail Project in the fall of 2013. Her daughter was in jail and pregnant. We'd love to hear about reform efforts in your communities. So please email us at hello at 70millionpod.com. For more information, our episode toolkit, and to download the transcript for this episode, visit 70millionpod.com. 70 Million is an open source podcast, so we invite you to use our episodes, transcripts, syllabi, and episode toolkits in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere you find them helpful. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. This podcast is a production of Lantigua Williams & Co. It's edited by Jen Xian and Casey Miner and mixed by Luis Gill. Our associate producers are Adiza Egan and Cher Vincent. Our marketing specialist is Kate Crochelle. Our staff writer is Nissa Ree. Our intern is Emma Forbes. And our fact checker is Sarah McClark. Juleka Lantigua-Williams is the creator and executive producer. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller.